Welcome everyone to Latitude Live and the Cyber People podcast. Today I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Faz Asir. Faz, who are you and what do you do? G'day everybody and thanks for having me, Will. I'm a technical recruiter here at Latitude IT and I recruit engineers within the fast-moving and exciting world of DevOps. Excellent. And we're also delighted to have with us the mercurial, effervescent, unpredictable Michael Jordan of DevOps, Jackson <laughs> Delahunt. Jackson, Every, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having me also. Every time that introduction comes, it gets more elaborate, more adjectives. Effervescent. I like that one. Effervescent, absolutely. Yeah. Like a Barocca, always fizzing away in the glass, never still. That's it. Always transforming water into lovely electrolyte loveliness. <laughs> yep, that's me. You know it. <laughs> thank you for having me. Cheers. It's a pleasure to have you, Jackson. Um, and uh, you have a very um, memorable name. It's a powerful name, Jackson Delahunt. It's mm. sort of like a secret agent. It's like a guy who's going to do big things, a guy who's destined for a bright future. It's that kind of name, you know. I'm sure it's served you well in your time. It has, yes. I'm actually thinking of going just by my first name, like Prince, Jackson, and take ownership of that. But we'll see. Or perhaps just a symbol. Just a symbol. Form, artist formerly known as Jackson, and a weird symbol. Yeah, it's probably something related to, you know, a Japanese character in a, an extended Unicode set. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, the world is full of symbols, and they have all sorts of powerful meanings. Mm. Uh, I mean, you are a, a technician. You, you're a coder. You, you, you string together symbols to create meaning. Is That's that right. a overly simplistic way of thinking about programming? No, I think it's actually a really beautiful distillation of programming. When you say I'm a technician, I really like that term. People say software engineer, and I dislike that term because to me an engineer is someone who deals with physics and chemistry. And I don't know how to balance the structures of a building. I couldn't engineer anything, but I'm definitely a technician. I have operated on any number of devices, whether it be a music mixing console or a gaming console, a telephone, a laptop. I just, I learn by doing. So I'm a technician first and kind of reversed my way into understanding. Uh, just to give some context, we've had a couple of hours chat before and we've gone over some incredible topics, talked about some wonderful ideas. And so we're actually gonna be like rehashing some thoughts we've come over tonight. And one of them was the, the idea of computers. What is a computer? We talked about base two, we talked about quantum computing, and the area I'm really interested in at the moment is analog computing. Nothing digital, but simply electronics and circuits. Resistors, capacitors, diodes, wires. Ultimately, we have Photoshop in front of us on a screen, but that Photoshop is translated into electrical signals at, on a printed circuit board level. It comes back to the physical world. So yeah, the technician, the operation, the doing, I really like that. Um, but isn't, isn't what you do engineering to the extent that you're building structures? Yes, yes. I, I used to say that we're building skyscrapers in the clouds. I thought that was a very grandiose term. Oh, I love it. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah, yeah. It's true in the same sense that if you build the foundations to your skyscraper poorly, you're going to have a very hard time going up and it's going to be unstable and it's going to be very hard to do what you want to do when you get to the 32nd floor. Um, but, yeah, yeah. I think that's why uh, Elon Musk is so obsessed with the idea of building down instead of up. Apparently you can build way larger structures underground than you can overground. Yes, yes. And this yeah. is the governing principle that is uh, driving his uh, design of the, um, the tunnels in LA. I understand that he's building. We go off on tangents on the show. It's totally fine, mm. folks. Don't worry, we'll get back on course. Mm. But um, yeah, he is building, um, if I understand it correctly, um, a network of highways underground, mm. super deep. Mm. Actually, one quality of an engineer that I think I do relate to is that you're working within constraints. In a more theoretical world, such as pure maths, you're working in the abstract. 
But when you bring it back to the world we live in, reality, you have constraints. And for example, building underground, you have very different constraints to building overground. And an engineer will apply themselves to the problem at hand as opposed to the problem in theory. And they will create a solution for that problem. And I do think that I relate to the engineering capacity in that I look at what's in front of me and what's possible and create a solution given the, the circumstance. So yeah, I, I engineer solutions, I'm a builder, I'm a creator, and I've done a lot of creating. And, and for those I look up to, they say that their distinguishing quality is pattern matching. They can imprint a pattern based on everything they've ever done in life onto your thing and say, this is what it could be. So I'm a great pattern matcher. A pattern muncher. That's one mm. of the defining characteristics of human beings, our mm. ability to recognize patterns that perhaps other animals don't have. But that's also not true because I know that um, animals can learn quite fast. For example, if you're filling up your water bottle in a river in Australia, in Queensland or the Northern Territory, you never do it in the same place twice mm. because if a crocodile sees you do it once, he'll assume you're going to come back and do it again and wait for you. Hmm. One of our oldest reptiles. Exactly, yeah. a dinosaur. Dinosaur, exactly. Yeah. Amazing. But Jackson, before we get uh, we go too far down the rabbit hole, as mm -hmm. is as it is so easy to do. As we do. As we do. As yeah. is our raison d'être. Perhaps you would like to tell us a little bit about um, who you are, what you do, and how you end up doing what you do, and then perhaps if you can remember all these questions in one go, what the future holds for you. Well, thank you for giving me the platform to talk about myself. No worries. Um, I'll try and make it interesting. Uh, it's said that after 10,000 hours at something, you become a master. So I'll try and list the things that I've done greater than 10,000 hours at. I started skateboarding when I was five, and I've just turned 30 a couple of months ago, and I'm still skateboarding. These days, I'm up to electric skateboarding. So that's an interesting practice of balancing a motor and terrain with your physical body and to get some adrenaline and to carve up a road. So I've been skateboarding, I'm a master of skateboarding, uh, extreme skiing, I do 360s, backflips, jumps, I've been skiing since I was three. Uh, that's in the physical world. When it comes to the intellect, I've loved codes, cryptography, ciphers, encrypted communication since I was about 12. And ever since then I've, I've sought ways to send messages to one another in, in secret forms. That led me on to my university studies where I studied Shannon's information theory and the representation of information using binary and computational structures. And then I went on to cryptography and, and cybersecurity, looking at uh, attacking primarily from a, an offensive perspective to learn how to defend. What I learned is that they're always gonna be ahead of you. The, the attackers are ahead of the defenders but it's a very noble pursuit to defend because there's a lot of people out there using a lot of devices who are open to compromise and can lose everything that they've ever worked for. So it's a very noble profession to defend people in cybersecurity. Um, as a result of my own work and my own innovation, I've learned about open source software from the leaders such as GitHub, uh, HashiCorp, um, and all the individual creators out there on GitHub. The software I run every day is 100% open source. I run on Linux, I have for since I was at university, um, and I was telling guys tonight that one of my most proud achievements is that the computer I run on is essentially a DevOps machine. It is a production environment that is configured by a code that deploys from zero to production within two seconds, so reliable, repeatable, and um, it, is the, it is the tool which I can distribute to other people so that they can operate in the same way that I can. Computers are a method of scale. You can't scale humans, but if I can put myself into a computer and then scale the computer, everyone can operate like me with the same tools, same efficiency, and then we can all get better together. So. Is that the principle of open source technology? That Absolutely. idea of contributing, everyone doing their bit and Absolutely. putting in a little bit of themselves and everyone moving forward together as one? Absolutely, yes, yeah. The, the, one of the biggest barriers to entry is starting from scratch. If you have a blank piece of paper and you try and draw your design, you, you've got to start from nothing. 
But if someone else draws the design, figures it out, tests it, tests it in the real world, they've done hundreds of hours work and they're probably going to get further than you would if you would have given up. But if you can just like use your intellect, which might be able to enhance it in just some small way with a few hours work, you can make a meaningful contribution. And that's what open source is about, giving you access to the state of the art so that you can, as an individual, contribute. Together, we can, we can make a world of open source, but it can't be done by any one individual or any one company. And um, we were talking earlier about how private companies such as Microsoft, Apple, and all the startups make you sign NDAs. They have intellectual property. Their knowledge and their power is behind protected walls. However, open source is the other way around. It's public domain first. It means that it is free from restriction. There are no intellectual property clauses, there are no NDAs, meaning that someone like me, a guy in my bedroom, can go and read a website and read the code written by an ex-Googler, an ex-Uber guy, the best in the world, and I can learn from the best. It's one-to-one -one communication. And the tide has changed. We used to pull from private knowledge. That's why when I say an Uberer or a Googler wrote it, they adopted principles and knowledge from those companies and went out into the open world and published their intellectual property, their creation in the public domain so that I could learn from the Googler and advance that. And I know people here in Sydney who contribute to open source projects and advance the world leading state of the art software and it has put the power back in the individual. And we see that happening in open source software, we see it in open currencies such as cryptocurrencies and if I may plug myself one of the next ones is open hardware. We don't have a place where you can go and download a mobile phone or download a laptop or think about even downloading the infrastructure of the Sydney train system. 20 years from now, you can get a train system, an underground train system design, and as a civil engineer, you can learn how to build the next boring company, an underground system of road networks through open source hardware. And that's one of my projects, is enabling access to information so that the human mind is the only limitation. It's not politics, it's not money. We all have access to open hardware and we can all create together. So, yeah, no open barriers to entry. That's but it. The, own, your, the, the, you, the limitations that you place on your own intellect or creativity. That's it, yeah. And it's if amazing. someone advances a project and they have to drop it, often it just it sits on the shelf and gets dusty. But if someone else could pick it up and carry the flame, then that project wouldn't die. And that's what open source allows. If you can get it and carry it on, you, you keep it alive. So is it, is it a kind of um, technological WikiLeaks, uh, a sort of, was it when it started a kind of, did industry first react to open source as a sort of form of industrial espionage? Someone had taken something that was patented or the IP belonging to an enterprise and they leaked it and then it just snowballed and then there was no way they could stop it and it became open source. Is that how it sort of started in a way? Very much so. The only difference I'd say is it wasn't leaked. These people reinvented it. And when you reinvent after doing it once before, you get to learn from all your mistakes. So the, the difference is that companies don't like to adopt open source because they say, well, what is, the, what is the licensing restriction about it? We didn't invent it. Why can we trust these people? And the people who needed it most, with their hair on fire and their money out saying, give me the code, I need that code, who just went ahead and used and innovated, they reach places that those companies never have in their time. They've innovated, out-innovated the startups who are closed source and the people who have built businesses in the last 60, 70 years. So open source has had the ability to leapfrog the last industry because of its freedom, its liberty. There's a, there's, they try and explain what does it mean free software. It's very confusing. You think free, that means no dollars. We're suspicious. Yeah, yeah, free software, you're suspicious. And then when you tell someone, sorry, you've got to pay for free software, they go, how do I pay for free software? It's free in that you can use the code, you can change the code, you can extend the code. But you have to pay for it. Good luck running it on your servers, in the cloud, with security, with a thousand users, that's going to be reliable for everyone every day. That's where open source companies can make their money, by managing and operating free software on behalf of big companies who need to 
be efficient and have their workers be more efficient and want to get better margins. So it's free in access, but paid in delivery. Because this is the thing that sort of blows me away. Uh, we work with a lot of big enterprises and very often when we receive job specs or project descriptions, it talks a lot about uh, open source technologies, open source um, policy agents, for example, if mm. you're implementing security controls across a data platform, mm. uh, open source um, policy agents. And I was quite surprised by that, I think, initially when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm. So the, the, uh, there's, there's so much trust um, and and I guess because of the fact that it's a open source piece of technology, there's so many people uh, contributing to it. Its quality just must be phenomenal, really. Mm, it's it's a bit of a bit of the scales. With the rapid advancement, quality can decline because you're pushing so hard on innovation. But then with broader adoption, your quality levels increase as more right. people use it. They test it, they say, hey, I tried to run it on Mac OS Lion, it didn't run, can you fix this? If you open source your software and it reaches 10,000 people, that's so much more if, uh, reliable and efficient than just delivering it to your seven person team inside your company. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it pushes ahead really fast in innovation and then it stabilizes once it gets distribution. Absolutely, I mean, if several billion people use it, how can they all be wrong? Mm. Mm. It's yeah. tried, it's tested. Yeah. It's it's tough as nails. So is there um, a lot of open source security tech out there, for example? Yeah, more in the offensive security zone. Okay. There's more hacking tools than there are defense tools. And all the defense tools originated from hacking tools. Um, boy, that's a big topic. Where I guess I would start with is probably just the the distillation of those tools into one Linux distribution. Linux is a core and you build on top of it your configuration. There's a purpose-built Linux distribution called Kali Linux, K-A-L-I, like the god of, I think it's god of destruction. Yeah, yeah, god of destruction. It's designed to destruct. And if your system is destructible, then you learn something valuable. But if it is indestructible, then you have some confidence. And this Linux distribution collects all the open source hacking tools and puts them into a system which is automated. You basically just spin it up, point it at a system, and it will run every known exploit since 1997 against that software and see if it can break in. So security, wow. yeah, security is becoming automated. I think that's where we're going, yeah. yeah. Okay, hmm. okay. Sort of um, automation of uh, security tooling into the cloud, mm. security as a code, mm. that sort of thing. Mm. And computers will find wonderful things that humans would have never thought of. For example, you open a picture on your computer. You don't think opening a picture is going to give you a virus. But a smart hacker, numerous times in history, has learned how to craft a picture such that the picture viewer, the thing which translates binary data into a visual, can be exploited and they can craft a picture that injects malware into your computer just by you opening it. And this is the kind of thing that computers can figure out. They randomize data. They produce millions of random pictures. And if one hits and one breaks the computer, then they go, this is a point of entry. And then they focus on that one entry point. And a computer just can iterate through millions of different varieties of pictures to find one way into your system. And the hacks that happen are just, humans wouldn't expect them. Computers can find them. Well, Sorry, go on, Pat. Are a lot of errors actually? A lot, a, do a lot of hacks come from human error? Is that where it comes? Oh yeah. from? Totally. That's the majority. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day when I was at university, my lecturers said you can use Google Code Search to search for a known function, which is often misused by humans. Yeah. And basically, it was called a memory copy function. It would copy memory from one location to the other, and humans would frequently misorder the, the arguments to that function. They'd substitute the, the length function, how much memory they want to zero out, in the wrong position. So they'd never end up, they'd never actually zero out any memory. And the passwords that they tried to clear were still there. So we would just search for misuse of this memory function. We go, oh cool, that's used in Google Chrome. Let's go hit that function. We just found a misuse and an exploit. And we could go and find human error 
by misconfiguration and exploit that to get root access on a remote machine by just getting them to load a web page. And from your experience, how much has that evolved since that incident, obviously, since you were in university? How much, where has it evolved to now? Many ways. There's bug bounty companies, entire companies built on hacking programs, where, for example, Tesla or GM will approach a startup and say, hey, we just released an autonomous car. Can you get a, a, a swarm of hackers to try and d break into our software? And if they break in, here is the rewards. Personal data, $10,000. Vehicle control, $25,000. Um, CEO's email, $50,000. So they entice people with rewards for destructive action in return for validation that they are secure. It's a, sorry, go on fast. And this makes me think, like from the other side, could the mm. other side entice them more to break the barriers down and let them in instead? Mm. Yeah, well then we get data leaks, right? Like half yeah. a million Facebook users released to data. Yeah, yeah I saw you, that. You yeah. can then take credit card numbers, you can do false purchases. There is a lot of criminal activity that's inspired by weak cybersecurity. I think it's really clever, the whole bug bounty thing. Um, I, my, my, um, kind of like my brother-in-law. He's not really my brother-in-law, but it's an easy way of describing our relationship. Mm -hmm. He runs a series of bars and he gives all of his employees a certain um, amount of free drinks because he knows that if he doesn't give them that, they're going to help themselves anyway. And the bug bounty is a very clever way of, it's like a mozzie zapper. It mm -hmm. attracts people who would otherwise be hacking mm -hmm. naughtily to do it legally and to make the money that they would get if they were doing it malevolently, right? So it's kind of exactly. a clever decoy in exactly. a way. But the discrepancy is in the bug bounty rewards versus the reward for uh, stealing the information. There's this term called a zero day bug, which means that it exists, but it hasn't been reported. So Windows doesn't know about it, they haven't fixed it. You can get into every Windows machine in the world running that. It's a super valuable bug. That can sell for $100,000. But a company might pay you $10,000 to find it. So that's an interesting market disagreement where companies think, oh, we don't need to pay for security. Yet the people who hack you have a much greater incentive to do it illegally and in, with criminal intent than they do for a defensive intent. Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's pretty amazing, I suppose. The um, I I heard a crazy st uh, statistic the other day that um, cybercrime is now uh, a bigger source of revenue for um, criminals than narcotics. Like it's become mm. such a huge revenue mm. stream. I mean, we literally hear about it every single day. It's mm. um, even people, like I was at the hairdresser the other day <coughs> and uh, the hairdresser was telling me all about cybersecurity, you know, just a, mm. a guy who was not really a specific techie, but such is the profile of uh, cybercrime mm. that he actually was able to talk about it quite comprehensively, yeah. you know. I think normal people are coming more and more uh, immune to cybercrime. You know, they're understanding it a bit more recently. Because mm. I find, you know, you go back even five years, nobody was thinking about it mm. in, in the sense of what they're thinking about it now, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, people are more wary. Yeah, they get an email from DHL saying, your shipment's stuck at the border, and they go, well, I better email them back. And it's like, no. <laughs> no, sorry, you don't want to email them back. That's actually a funny topic, right? So at the moment, I'm seeing lots of, um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting heaps of emails from like Telstra, like quote marks, mm. Or like Amazon quote marks, mm. and it looks super fake, but there's lots of people that would think they're real. Mm. In my mind, just because I keep checking into places with QR codes, because we're in Australia, we have mm. to keep doing that mm. to like you know trace our step mm. footsteps for COVID and all that sort of stuff. Do you reckon there's a bit of a correlation with that? Because it's like spiked dramatically ever since I've been scanning into places, and I've been getting it's gone less to spam and more to my actual inbox. Mm. I would preface this with saying I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. If they are exploiting that, I don't know, but I would doubt it. Yeah. I mean, it is an Australian government system. Australian governments are fallible just as any other human design system is, but I wouldn't associate an increase in phishing with QR codes. 
but I think it's a good it's a good place to target. Yeah. I think that's a very high value target. A lot of people were very concerned about the government apps tracing their every move, um, and were resistant to it. Yeah. But you can't go into a venue these days without scanning. So exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's true. It's um, look, I think in a time like this when people are scared and they're at home a lot and on lockdown and so forth, it's uh, it's easy to feed off that fear and to, um, you know, if we're, we're all online a lot more because we're at home, we're not going out nearly as much. We mm. all, we're a much uh, larger attack surface than we mm. used to be before COVID. Mm. And all of my clients are, are, are saying that um, there's been a, a huge increase, like it's just gone absolutely bonkers, you know? Mm. Yes, I have witnessed that. Yeah, I've in- witnessed the increase, but I think it's probably an effect of COVID more than yeah. you know, QRs. There's a great documentary on YouTube, actually, where a guy in Britain, he receives scam ads and then he calls a number on the scam ad just to go through the scam experience. I get very tempted to do this too, but then I also think, God, my time. I do it all the time. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really entertaining, yeah, isn't it's it? it's so much fun. Yeah. Because you, you like, um, they call you up and they're like, what's your name? I'm like, you called me. I know, right? Why yeah. do I to tell you my name? Yeah. And they're like, okay, bye. Literally. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, he uh, uses an exploit in the software to like get a reverse tunnel into their system. And he exposed a scam call center in India where had multi-level of people scamming and he got into the video camera system. So he could watch the guy on the phone trying to scam him whilst he was receiving the scam call and see the guy. And he found that even in that industry, they're so lazy. He was playing Tetris whilst doing a scam call because he was so routine that he was playing a game and then eventually after maybe four hours of screwing with this guy he drops the guy's name and the guy just freezes he thinks how do you know my name what and uh it's it gets really interesting from there and anyway he reported to the bangladeshi police looked up the uh the the building on google maps found its location they did a raid that morning and then they found that the bosses had been yeah, for years, taking all the money, had beautiful houses, IMAX, everything, and it was all from scams. And the calls he hears are just heartbreaking. Like a, a woman in in her old age, trying to care for her bedridden husband, gets a call from a scammer and thinks, "Oh, I need to pay this. I'm struggling with his medical bills, but you're telling me something." And and they manage to extract money coldly, coldly, heartlessly. And that's that's the worst part. They're they're, they're targeting people that aren't. Um, of a younger generation and they're the ones that mm. usually fall for it, right? Trusting, trusting yeah. people, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a a wide industry, a breadth. It's, it's got, I don't, know, I don't know how you put it, I'm kind of, it's so, it's too big to summarize into words, it's just, a, it's a... What, what, yeah. uh, what um, strikes me is that we, we hear a lot about the attacks um, <clears throat> we hear a lot about ransomware and um, companies being ground to a halt by disruption of, uh, like DDoS attacks, disruption of service. Mm-hmm. But you hear so seldom stories about offensive cyber. Like presumably if someone finds a vulnerability into your system mm-hmm. um, and exploits that vulnerability, aren't they leading a trail of breadcrumbs back to them? Yes, they are. And the escape they have from that is a disclosure system. It's called the CVE. You go and you report a bug. And there is a window of about 60 days in which you say, here is an exploit. I can gain access. If you don't fix it in 60 days, I will release it publicly. Because everyone who is vulnerable to this is, everyone who has this software is vulnerable. And if you don't fix it, they are going to get hacked by someone else. I'm telling you about it in a disclosure period. Right. So there is... And boy, do I admire those people. Like I said, those are really valuable exploits. You can sell them on the black market for hundreds of thousands of dollars if you can compromise millions or tens of millions of people. They give them openly, they disclose them, they work with the company such as Google or Microsoft to get it resolved. And then on the day of disclosure, everyone releases, gets an update and everyone is now secure from that. It's a bit of good karma. Change. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. get a job. You probably Google yeah. wants to hire you. What and, goes around comes around, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, crime doesn't pay. No, definitely. in the long run. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the Kali Linux thing. That sort of blew me away a little bit. It's sort of like um, a boot camp. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great way to learn. It aggregates everything you would ever want to know about penetration testing and hacking into one distribution. And uh, it's great. Uh, in my personal experience, I've exploited neighbors' wireless networks to get in. Um, I've learned exploitation techniques through it. Uh, we, we started out with open wireless networks. We used to drive around in a car and look for an open network and connect to it. That was kind of in like 2005. And Just then, one that wasn't password protected. Yeah, yeah, totally. Grandma's network. You know. <coughs> yeah. And then there was WEP, W-E-P, which was a crackable format, and that got exploited easily, but then WPA came out and WPA2, which were very secure for a number of years. And then this is it. It's always offensive versus defensive. It got more secure, so the hackers got smarter. And they didn't try and hack the protocol, they hacked around the protocol. They would actually block people from getting on the wireless network and force them to re-enter the password of the wireless. Then when they re-entered that password, they would capture it. And if it matched the original password, they go, cool, you just gave him the password, I'm in. And then they would let them on. So it's like uh, going up to a guy who's standing at an ATM and putting a gun to his head and saying, tell me your pin. Uh, or observing him from a camera without him realizing. <clears throat> Uh, no, it's like it's like if he was go to go to the ATM and he went to scan his fingerprint and his fingerprint got him in, but you put a, a skimmer over the fingerprint scanner and every time it scanned it, you went denied, 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 and it goes, do you want to fall back to your PIN? And you go, yeah, I know my PIN, cool, type PIN, 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 and now you just got the PIN to his account and you can let him in, but now he's in, he thinks everything's good, and you've just got his PIN so you can access thereafter. So it's not that they're hacking the protocol, they're hacking the people around it of course mm. the yeah. greatest mm. strength mm. and the greatest vulnerability all at the same time mm -hmm. the P user yeah the user there's this good an acronym called a picnic p-i-c-n-i-c -I -I problem in chair not in computer and that's when you go out and try and fix something it's always a problem with the user computers just do what they're told so true yeah so true yeah. i'm quite proud in a way because since i've been involved in cybersecurity my mum has become super militant about any kind of email that comes in that's remotely suspicious. So she got like an email the other day from the doctor saying she had to make some kind of down payment on my father's um, cataract surgery. And mm. I was like, oh, that's a bit suspicious, you know. Mm. And mum's like, like reported the whole thing and, mm. um, you know, pressed the red panic button didn't pay but like reported it to i don't know who she reported it to probably everyone mm. local mp or whatever mm. and uh it, it turned out that it actually was the doctor but i, <laughs> I like the fact that she's erring on the side of caution yeah <clears throat> when they swat him and the swat team raids his office he's yeah. gonna know who to thank exactly yeah. exactly actually probably one of the best ones actually was i was in america and i made a craigslist ad um to try and get i think it was I was trying to go to a concert and I wanted to buy concert tickets. And then someone got my number because I put the ad on it and they called me with a, a thing that said dispatch. And then when I answered a big deep voice saying, this is 911 dispatch, we've found you in engaging in illegal activity. I thought, fuck, I'm in a foreign country. Like, what have I done? Have I broken a law by accident? And by spoofing the number they were calling from, it made me think it was actual 911. And I went into a police station. I went, I think I'm being scammed, but I don't know. And I asked him, and he went, yeah, it's a scam, buddy. Don't worry, we've seen this all the time. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Like the one that's going around Australia at the moment, loads of people have got it where you get a, a voicemail by a guy with a very sort of credible, officious Australian accent saying that there's an issue with your tax file number. Yes. And you need to call this number to avoid um, a fine or jail time. Mm, mm. As soon as he said jail time, I knew it was a hoax. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's mm. the one I was talking about before. When I actually play along with it, and mm. let him talk to me. Mm. Yeah, once mm. you just once you don't cooperate, they just hang up on you. Mm. But it, yeah, at the same time, it's those vulnerable mm. people that mm. take the bait, right? Mm. I think I've been in the position of being fooled. When yeah. someone said jail time for a while, I was convinced. It's scary, and stuff, I was man. sick to the stomach. I thought, yeah. what have I done? You know, he had me hook, line, and sinker, as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, they play on your fears. Yes. And once yeah. you become afraid, you, you lose the power of rational thought. Yes, yes. Yeah, in hindsight, I was acting irrationally, but I couldn't think in any other way at the time because you get the emotional rush, the, the physical response. That's, that's where they get you, I think. You know? yeah. A lot of yeah. people have that instant reaction and then mm. 
not a lot of people think about it afterwards. They just mm. sort of act, right? Mm. Yeah. And there's a saying I've learned in business that time kills deals. People oh. get heady over deals. We have the same thing in recruitment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, exactly. Yeah. And time kills, I reckon time kills, like, you know, social engineering hacks. Yeah. Four hours later, you call them up, they go, were you really the person I thought you were? But in that moment, they go, okay, okay, what, what do I need to do? Tell me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We, are, we are, in a way, human beings are like keyboards, right? You can program us so easily, mm. you mm. know. Push the buttons. So, um... Tell us a little bit more about like what you actually do. Like, can you talk us through a sort of um, typical day in the life? Mm. Sure. I analyze businesses in order to convert their human processes into software processes. Every business is made up of its people and everyone fulfills a task. But humans, as we've said many times, are error prone. Those tasks fail to be delivered. They fail to get executed. Someone didn't do the QA before release. Now the users can't access their wallets or something. And I take these human established processes and I put them into a computer process, which runs all day, every day, doesn't require maintenance, um, is reliable, repeatable. And what that does, it frees up human minds. It lets them trust that when they push, they can't break. Because if everyone is afraid of breaking the code, everyone says, hey, hey guys, is it okay if I push to master? Yeah, 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 sure, we'll push to master. And it, 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 the velocity of your team slows. What I love about DevOps and what I do, systematizing businesses, is it increases the velocity massively and lets humans be free to do the human part and lets machines take over the automation part. And uh, again, open source <coughs> software... Excuse me. Uh, you're welcome. Open source software is the leveling play playing field, a leveler that gives me the ability to go to, into a company and say, hey guys, this is what you want. As I said, the tides have changed. Companies are adopting open source to go faster. So I'm an open source expert in that I've watched the industry grow. I, I really know the landscape and I can take a company and take an open source technology and combine the two to bring them in digital transformation into the future and hopefully future-proof them. Everything I do is not just about today, it's about three years from now. And how do I ensure that costs are low over time? How do I keep efficiency high? Because things can start good, but they can degrade very rapidly unless you maintain principles, standards, and um, just, a, a, just a conscious approach to DevOps. And a little bit more depth, how do you go about doing that in terms of you know, implementing processes? Because mm. you know, we keep coming back to this point of humans being the point of error. Mm. How do you mold that so that people mm. follow the processes and keep everything running smoothly? It takes time. You need to watch the company be. You need to see who does what. Um, there's a great tool lately called Cl Code Climate that gives you insights into who is doing what in your code. That's nice because you can automate it with a machine. But it is just giving you a visualization on the climate of your company. Um, you, you go to meetings, you ask questions, you meet with the CTO, you meet with the head of engineering, you meet with the team leads, you meet with the devs at the, on the front line, and you say, how did this come to be? Who did that? Uh, who got you off the ground? Where are you going? You ask questions. S great salespeople, and I'm not one, apparently they, they understand the customer and they solve a genuine problem for the customer. They don't want to sell them a product, they want to solve the customer's problem. Yeah, great salespeople listen more than they speak. Yeah. 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 So I listen to the company by observing. And then I say, I think you need this. And I'm like, I feel bad about not delivering code on day one, but I feel worse when I wrote code that was a waste of time. And had I had more foresight, I could have done a better solution. So sometimes you just need to sit back a little bit and just take it in. And then you can make a more informed decision. And every company is different. It really is. It's, that has been one of the biggest eye-openers. You think everyone's the same? No, no. Companies are made of people, not technology. Technology is tools. Even industries? They're, even, they're, yeah. they're sort of different yeah. company to company? Oh, yeah, yeah. You've got different supply chains, different um, customers, different frequencies of purchase, different payment methods. It's so different, yeah. So you have to be, to be good at what you do. You have to be intuitive and you have to be sensitive to nuance and you have to truly understand the business and the people in order to create something that's 
relevant to what they do. Mm. Yeah. In in the same way as security, for example, you know, a good security person, as far as I understand, doesn't just sort of implement something according to a framework. They look at what the business is doing and what they can actually what their appetite for risk is, what they can stomach, and what's actually going to align with the business. Mm. So mm. it's not just about creating Fort Knox, it's about creating something that is um, flexible and practical and adoptable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and logical. Mm. Mm. And that's unique to every situation. Yeah. So the idea behind <coughs> DevOps, as you describe it, is to systemize processes. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get to the point where um, by systematizing things to a certain point or having things run on rails, you can inadvertently stifle innovation? Like if you, if you set things on a specific course, this is the way we're going to do things. How do you then expand beyond that from a creative perspective? Or isn't that really a, an issue? Like if you're, um, yeah. if you're, yeah. uh, if you have a bicycle that's got training wheels, mm. Mm. you know, you can tip a little bit that way mm. and tip a little bit that way. But mm. like sometimes you need to get your knee down to go around mm. the corner. Mm. Like, does yeah. that does? Do you ever have situations where DevOps can stifle mm. creativity within an organization, or I not had, really? I had to think about it because my first response is that by uh, by putting it down on paper. Or code, you you actually liberate yourself because it's like signing a contract. We have a verbal contract. It was kind of he said this said they said, but if you put it on paper, what's on paper is the agreement, and it's very clear. Same thing with code. If we take your human process and we put it down into code, it is codified. It is there. It is right in front of you, which usually gives you a great platform for innovation because we can both look at the same thing and say. This is what it is, this is what it could be, and that's an improvement. Let's make that change. So I would have said it by codifying it, you're liberating yourself. But the thing I said before about pattern matching, if you pick a bad pattern early on, or you don't pick the optimal pattern, you can really run yourself into a rut that you keep paying for for years after. Technical debt is like credit card debt. It increases at like a very high interest rate, like 20 plus percent. So what I'm, what I'm getting from this is it's about the foundations, right? Absolutely. It's about getting it right from the start. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. A stitch in time saves nine in line. All these sayings have been around for pre-computers. If right decisions at the start pay dividends all the way through. And it saves people, because again, we're taking people and putting them into computers. Your hiring costs are reduced. Your existing team can go further. Um, pattern matching and doing it right from the start is the most important thing. Yeah. So it's like a, a sort of liberation in a mm. way. Open source, DevOps, you're making things more efficient. You're freeing up resources to focus mm. on the more important things. The creative mm. side of things, less on the administrative mm. side of things. Mm. <coughs> so the, the humans serve the technology. They come out and they fix the broken instance. It should be the other way around. The technology should serve the human to allow them to move fast. So I'm, I'm making that inversion. Yeah, okay. No, I see that. I see that. So talk to us a little bit on that subject of freedom in the public domain. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that sort of thing? Like, um, um, yeah, the whole sort of concept of um, putting technology back in the hands of the people, open source and so forth, mm. freeing up resources through... Uh, automation and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like- mm, mm, sure, yeah. The, the analogy I really like is the library. You can go to the library and you can access a whole building of knowledge for free. If you had to put a dollar value on the library and the value of the books, it would be practically invaluable. What, how can you value the capacity of knowledge in a human mind? It, what will come is more than that person ever expected or you could conceive because that's it it's innovation it's beyond what you know it's new it's new frontiers so by taking the truth code is the truth the numbers never lie the numbers (coughs) never lie that is it if you run a program through a computer it will do the same thing every time it is reliable repeatable if you share that truth and that knowledge with people all around the world they are empowered you gave them a tool I think of it like a toolbox with the tools. It's a hammer and a screwdriver. 
I have my CI, I have my tests, I have my linter, I have my uh, code editor, I have my config, and I've pulled them from all people who came before. These things I didn't write from scratch, and I couldn't have. But by standing on the shoulders of giants and leveraging what people have given me, I'm able to innovate. I, like, I have done a lot of innovation, and it's only thanks to people open sourcing code that I've reused. I think of this thing I build as a big building, and I pull the the foundations from here, I pulled the windows from there, I pulled the fit out from there, and I put it all together, but that's where it comes. Like, there's this idea of being in a team, being the glue. Teams can be disparate, but if there's that one person running around checking on you, how are you doing? Can I branch you over here? Can I keep you together? Someone being the glue is what pulls teams through the hard times. And open source is the glue to my innovation that fills out the gaps that I don't have a million hours to develop. I'm, I'm leveraging millions of hours of human time when I use open source. Open source is quantifiable in terms of time. It's saving me millions of hours that I don't have. And letting me stand at the end of the millions of hours road. That's it, I get to go to the end of the road and I can make a little bit further. And yeah, it's, that's the essence for me. It's I can see you're very passionate about it. Yeah, yeah, well, it, it got me where I am. I'm so thankful for open source, so thankful, because it is knowledge, it is free knowledge, and it's the best in the world. Do you remember the first open source program you worked with? Yeah, Visual Basic 6. I used to write MSN messenger bots that would like send repeated messages or send away messages or repeated sign in. Repeated nudges. Yeah, sign in, out, in, out, in, out, so someone else's screen got filled with notifications. And this was on a, a forum with some guy in Britain sharing his code to me. That was the first open source. And that was like, we've gone through Web 1.0, Web 2.0, and we're kind of in Web 3.0. That was 2.0 in that the guy could share his code up to the web and I could consume it. But I couldn't push anything back. I, I did a lot of development on his code and I would have loved to show it, but I didn't have a mechanism to push back to him. That's where GitHub came in. GitHub is a system of collaboration where I can push back to the master and when I push back it gets filtered out to hundreds of thousands of people. So my change is magnified by all the consumers of that. And that's where GitHub has created an exponential system of knowledge. The number of repositories on GitHub has gone up since 2012, literally exponentially. People overuse that word and it's not an exponential growth. GitHub has grown exponentially. And they're only getting bigger because now they're moving into enterprise. And they control the enterprise's code. And those enterprises are now open sourcing parts of their code, which filter back out. And it's like a tidal wave. It goes out, comes in. It's goes out, comes in. Love. Yeah, 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 and love in in sense of, of knowledge and access, and so we all share. Does anyone profit from GitHub, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's where the open source business models are unique in the old way. Um, I get distribution by giving my software freely to people who open source their ideas. That's distribution, it gives me uh, publicity, uh, notoriety, and, and access. Where the money comes in is if you're developing private intellectual property knowledge, you still want to use my tools so your engineers can collaborate better, but you don't want to share your, your wonderful innovation that's going to make you money. That's where you pay. If you want to keep it private, you pay. You're not getting me any exposure. You're not contributing back to the community, so you pay a fee. And that's where GitHub is really growing as a company in terms of profit. A lot of these venture capital funded businesses don't make a profit for a long time, but then they find ways of making a business later. And that's where GitHub is growing massively at the moment. They've just moved into Asia Pacific. They're doing a lot of enterprise sales here. And that's really making the business that they built off the back of open source become profitable. I see. Yeah. Is there, would there be any friction between like open source and you know, SaaS products? Oh yeah, yeah, a um, variety of ways. Whether it's we don't trust open source because we didn't write it here, or it's open source, if we use it, someone can read the code and exploit us. Is there like licensing licensing problems? Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, numerous like case studies. For example, even Facebook's main front-end framework called React had a licensing change. They made the change and there was so much backlash for the community that then they released a new license change that was more in keeping with the community. Because a lot of people said, if I'm following the rules, I can't use your code anymore. You just blocked me from using your code because of your licensing change. And then by community pushback, they modified the license to remove those restrictions. 
licenses are restrictions, and I said this code was free. So it's free from first principles, but then you apply a license, such as if I modify the code, I am required to give yeah. my changes back to you. That's called a copyleft agreement, not copyright. I'm right. forced to give back. So does you, if you are an enterprise and you do use open source, are you making yourself more vulnerable to cybercrime or not really? Um, Is that just a perceived vulnerability, but not a realistic one? It's arguable on case by case. It's more perceived. As I said, the distribution to more users means that you're probably going to have more secure code because it's been run in more places. But mm, it's case by case. Sorry, yeah. Different tools might have an exploit, but it doesn't. It's, if you use that tool that does have an exploit, now you're vulnerable. If you didn't use open source, you wouldn't be using that tool and you're not vulnerable. And, and these things happen week to week. That's what hits the front page news. Anyone who uses this package is now vulnerable. And hackers have been deploying cryptocurrency mining bots onto people's servers who use this. So it's, that's the week to week news. We're, we're in the wild west. It's all open. So Jackson, um, I've, we, we work with a lot with sort of big enterprise people, you know, big companies, people in suits, uh, people who are sort of, you know, I'm the professional consultant in my fancy suit. You're a young, hip dude. You're a sort of part of, in my old eyes, you're like the sort of cutting edge of the next generation of tech. A you pioneer. Know? Yeah, like a hipster. You're, you're a free guy. You've got long hair. You don't wear a suit. Like, you must be super plugged into the whole Sydney tech scene. Like, can you talk a little bit about where we are now from that perspective in terms of innovation and creativity and what kind of a trajectory we're on? Sure, yeah. I think it's a budding industry. <clears throat> Silicon Valley is kind of like stepping into the future. When I went there, it was like I went 15 to 20 years in, into the future. And I think it has an element of truth in that what is in Silicon Valley filters out to the rest of the world after it happens there. So if future is the experience of the technology, then yeah, they were ahead of us, they were in the future. But we're seeing a lot of Australian entrepreneurs who visited the US, visited the technology capital of the world, and are bringing back what they've learned about uh, startups, building companies that grow really fast, and they're bringing it to Sydney, because they're Australians, they have some kind of Australian camaraderie and culture, and they want to give their locals the opportunity and build an industry here. Uh, there's been numerous bodies set up to try and negotiate with government about funding. Um, a lot of angel networks, a lot of VCs are popping up. One In of the incubators as well? Incubators, yeah, yeah. And they come and go because startups are high risk. So there's been different incubator models where they might take a third of your company and develop your product for you and then help you sell it. Um, a third is a large amount. Other investors might take 7.5% but they'll be more hands-off and they'll let you do the work yourself. But for example, Canva's investors, Blackbird, they invested in one of my startups called STEM, the Open Source Science, Technology, Engineering and Maths Network. And to have access to the investors in the Blackbird Network is incredibly valuable, particularly for the international um, connections. You guys working the Sydney scene, you've already said how hard it is to hire here because everyone wants the same talent and it's a much smaller market. Um, so And no one's coming in because of COVID. Yeah, that's And no it. one wants to move jobs because of COVID. So yeah, <clears throat> yeah. it's very contracted, very tight. Yeah, yeah there's, a lack of, like, there's a lot of insecurity in the market. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's budding. It's only going to grow and opportunities will increase. Uh, women in tech is a big thing. I, my ex-girlfriend, I taught her a lot of front-end, and she was so excited at the idea of, of joining Microsoft um, and having programs to onboard people who are coming from a non-university background into a tech company where they can bring value to the company but they don't necessarily have a computer science degree is a new way in which the industry is broadening because, yeah, there aren't enough computer science graduates to put one in the position but someone who's come from events management background and uh, they've done people resource hiring, they would be a great connection for an internal recruiter at a company or a, a, a tech evangelist helping other people join the company. So okay. 
And 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 can you speak a little bit about uh, where you see the sort of next technological breakthroughs coming through? Like, you know, from an R and D perspective, is there stuff that us mere mortals don't know about that we can expect to see fairly soon that a chap like you has got the lowdown on? Mm, we have ways to make you talk. <laughs> That's funny. I think we're kind of in the same boat because open source is public domain. Um, I could make a prediction, but it's honestly not clear. Uh, Kubernetes is a platform for the future and everyone is innovating in that space. So the big innovations will come in Kubernetes, containerization. Uh, but I think one of the biggest potentials is the efficiency of the cloud. There are a lot of startups helping you use, uh, minimize your cloud resources people with AWS bills in the hundreds of thousands. And that's where they need venture capital to help them get going. And, and using AI to minimize those bills and automate their DevOps and infrastructure to minimize cost is a big area where companies can save literally tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Going back just a step, if you were to explain you know, Kubernetes in layman's terms mm. you know, to people that don't really you know, mm -hmm. understand, it. they've heard the words before, but they don't mm -hmm. really get it, how mm -hmm. would you describe that? I would describe it as dividing you have a computer in front of you and you run your apps on it. What Kubernetes does is it takes a thousand computers and makes them look like one computer. You run your app on that one big supercomputer, but it puts it on one of those little thousand computers. And if that thousand computer, that one in a thousand computer goes down because of normal technical failure, it will automatically redeploy your application onto another healthy computer. But you don't see that, that's all underneath. And then, you know, a lot of people are talking that, um, you know, what I speak of, I'm not a technical guy, but I speak to mm -hmm. a lot of tech guys, like, does Docker and Kubernetes, like, work in harmony? Is that a mm. thing, or is it, can one work without the other? Yes, they work in harmony, and one can work without the other. There's a foundation called the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is kind of set up by the, I, like, a body like the IEEE, to formalize and create some standard in the space, and... Kubernetes and Docker are kind of being donated to that foundation, as have many other projects like Redshift and components of Redshift. So you can run Kubernetes with container D, which is a non-Docker container mechanism. You can run it with Rocket, which is another container, like Docker and Rocket, same solution, but solution to the same problem. Yeah. And they work with Kubernetes, so they work in harmony. Okay, yeah, because from what I understand, Kubernetes is one of the newer technologies that's been around since 2016, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to give history for anyone who doesn't know, the people who worked at Google left Google, and after learning the lessons of running applications like Gmail, Google Maps, um, Google Search on tens of thousands of computers, they took that same mechanism and made it available for the rest of the world. They said, we need it, we can't operate without this. Once you've had it, you can't go back. So they made Kubernetes and then it's like become the open source standard for application deployment. I love the whole open source thing. I find it very encouraging uh, about human nature. You know, I, mm. I, it, gives me, um, it gives me hope about the human race, you know, freeing up resources and sharing them up amongst everyone, which in many ways, if you look back at history, is quite a rare thing. Mm. A little bit like um, Gutenberg's printing press, in a way, you know, mm. liberating knowledge. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a huge rabbit hole, mm. and I know we don't have time to go down it, but uh, perhaps as a prelude to our next conversation, could you speak a little bit about um, blockchain? Um, I know that it's a word that people have heard, probably most people, including myself, don't really understand it. It seems to be something that's um, on the fringes, cutting edge, but not yet a part of our everyday life. Mm. Can you perhaps maybe talk about how and when blockchain will become just a sort of normal part of your average chap in the streets life? Mm. I think if it were to be the average chap in the street, it would be that the services he consumes are backed by blockchain, but he doesn't interact with the blockchain directly or even know it's there for that matter. Right. I like taking the technology away when it comes to explaining a blockchain. I like going back to the Roman forum where they had tablets. The blockchains are often called distributed ledgers. 
you have a ledger of all your transactions and it's distributed amongst thousand people and you can go around to any one of those thousand and say my ledger looks like this does your ledger look like this and if they go yes then you have trust and you can keep going and asking more people and after you've asked a hundred people you're like okay I think my ledger's honest so I can believe that you have a hundred thousand dollars and if you're gonna transfer me a hundred thousand I validate it with a hundred other people and now I can trust you peer-to-peer -peer lending yeah but then the beauty the real elegance of it is that we can all see the ledger it's open but I don't know who holds this wallet the wallets are secret I can see the wallet has this much amount of money and someone transferred this money to it but I don't know who it is I can just see it happened so we can stay anonymous but we can verify that you have money if you say you do that's why I'd rather be rich than famous. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's it. Fame, people will flock to you and try and take everything you've built. 100% exactly. right, yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Low-key, low-profile. Yeah. Keeping it real. Yeah. Yeah. But the only way a cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology is going is up and more prevalent. So if you're looking for a sound investment, I truly advise, as a non-financial advisor, putting some money into the cryptocurrency space because it's not getting smaller. Disclaimer. It can only grow. <laughs> Disclaimer. Past performance doesn't uh, predict uh, future yeah, yeah, performance. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Jackson, um, I can't thank you enough for coming and I really look forward to you coming back and doing another chat with us where we perhaps focus solely on the whole blockchain and cryptocurrency thing because... If, you, if anyone out there is at all like me, you really don't know what's going on and you'd probably quite like to. So it would be mm. awesome if you could come back and talk to us in detail about all of that stuff. It requires a full episode. Okay. Yeah. But okay. if you see a sign saying, uh, if you see Bitcoin on the side of a bus, it's time to buy, that sign is really quite very, it's true. Yeah, that's right. There you go, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. You heard it here first. This has been the Cyber People Podcast. Thank you so much, Jackson Delahunt. Thank you very much, my esteemed colleague, Fagus here. And, uh... Yeah, well, thank you, Will. Thank you, Faz. Uh, pleasure to do chat with you. Yes. Uh, it's great to have people providing a platform and pushing out content and being thought leaders. Uh, it was a real pleasure to join you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jackson. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.